From the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. King Amasa Taylor is a scholar, activist, and author. An assistant professor of African American Studies at Princeton, her new book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership, has just come out and is long listed for the 2019 National Book Award for nonfiction. It's my pleasure to have her on the show today. Hi, Kanga. How are you doing? I'm great. Very happy to be here. You know, I'm from Chicago, that I love my city, but this is the one time of year where it looks really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have a new book dropping, Race for Profit. I saw a very early version of this and was extremely excited and been waiting to see it come out. You go through the story that I think changes our narrative through looking at the experience of poor black people, particularly poor black women who are drawn in by the state and predatory lenders into the homeowner's market far earlier than we think about processes or having taught to think about processes of neoliberalization, financialization, which is also a story that sometimes is absent people of color. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start by having you outline a little bit the story that you do tell in Race for Profit and how does that change how we think about some of the key debates around the nature of capitalism today, how we think about neoliberalism, how we've thought about it over the last 10 or 15 years. Sure. So I'm, I'm trying to do multiple things in this book, and it remains to be seen if I've tried to do too many. But I think one of the sort of bigger ideas that I'm trying to challenge is a really central pillar of American liberalism that the root, that conceptualizes the root of black inequality, black poverty, in in the U.S. as a matter of exclusion, that if we allowed historically and even in the contemporary moment African Americans to be fully absorbed into the institutions of American capitalism, that that would erase the disparities between African Americans and whites. So I'm looking at that historically and using the housing, the housing industry, Federal policy is related to housing as a way to examine that premise. And what I find is that the end of exclusion ends one set of problems, but it creates a new set of problems that are historically rooted in that exclusion. And so I identify what I describe as predatory inclusion, which is to say that the the problems that are created historically in black urban communities, so really a 20th century phenomenon that are created by exclusion. So disinvestment and all of the the problems that come with that, substandard housing, deteriorated housing, overcrowding, you know, Donald Trump wants to talk about rat infestation. That is an issue too, but as a marker of racism and segregation, not as indicative of the people who live in those communities. And so those are all created and exacerbated over time. And when there is a shift in the market orientation because of the need to develop new markets in combination with political pressure exerted by African Americans through successive waves of rebellions throughout the middle 1960s, there is a decision to open up the institution of home ownership. But because of the damage that has been created over years of exclusion and redlining, it means that it creates a pretext for black people to be included but on differential terms, which creates a pathway for the continuity of predation and exploitative activity in the real estate market. So black people are relegated to mortgage banks instead of having access to larger depository banks. They are paying more for inferior housing, whether it's rental or whether it is, is, is purchased. So that, that's one of the, 
which creates the basis for what I call predatory inclusion. So that, that's one of the big ideas that I'm looking at. Related to that is the way that segregation can continue to persist even after new rules, laws, regulations are created to ban it. And so that is, is one of the important factors for understanding how predatory inclusion can function, which is to say that when there is a decision to allow African Americans into the conventional housing market to purchase their own homes, it's really done on the basis that it remains segregated. So officials in the Federal Housing Administration, representatives from the banking and real estate industries, finally become okay with the idea that black people can own property and that they can use conventional means to do so, meaning that they don't just have to rely on land installment contracts, which were pervasive in Chicago, as an example. But they can go to the bank and they can get FHA backing, backed loans. But the housing must, it continues to have to be on a segregated basis because a core idea, philosophy of the real estate industry in the United States is that black people in particular have a deleterious impact on property values and they must be kept separate. And these are political ideological beliefs that then become attached to public policy through this public-private partnership that gives rise to a program to promote single-family home ownership among African Americans. And so segregation, the persistence of segregation is important to understanding why African Americans have this different experience of home ownership compared to their white peers who a generation earlier when the federal government created programs to make working class white people homeowners, that led to a white middle class, a much more expansive white middle class. And for African Americans, it perpetuated a cycle of, of poverty and dispossession. So that, that's another important idea, as is the critique of public-private partnerships and the idea that two different mechanisms, public policy, which is intended to promote and defend the public's welfare, and private entrepreneurialism, private enterprise, are intended to profit, and that these two things do not work together. And so the examination of these programs in the late 1960s and 1970s are, are an investigation of that, the incompatibility of public and private. I think another ideological outcome that is produced from what becomes a scandal-ridden crisis around the emergence of these programs is the way that black people and the supposed knowledge that white state actors and within the private sector have about the domestic dysfunction of black families, what is assumed to be the domestic dysfunction of black families, is used as an explanation for why these programs ultimately don't work. So even as agents for the Federal Housing Administration are being indicted for conspiracy and conspiracy to commit fraud, even as agents from the private sector, from the housing industry, are being indicted for engaging in fraud. Congressional hearings focus on black families and black women, single head of households in particular, as the root cause of the problems in these programs. And that's not just a, a case of another example of, of scapegoat, scapegoating African Americans. It's wielded politically at a moment when the Nixon administration is trying to divest itself from the Johnsonian welfare state. And so the collapse and unraveling of this program is held up as the essence of the problems with the welfare state and is used to impose a moratorium on all subsidized housing in 1973. And so what is referred to as the HUD FHA crisis of the early 1970s is really used to reset public policy around low-income housing 
thereafter. It gives rise to a new set of legislations, most pointedly the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, which gives us Section 8 housing vouchers, which sets in place the private market as the ultimate place where poor and working class people will be housed and completely removes the, the, the federal government from any notion of building or managing public housing, but shifts to the market completely as the, the, the place whereupon low-income housing will be solved. So these are, are some of the big ideas that, that I'm looking at in the book. I think I'll just say about the, the questions about neoliberalism and financialization. I think that the early 1970s are obviously a pivotal moment when talking about the, the shift away from Keynesianism to a neoliberal economic structure in the economy. And one of the things I think is important about this is that often the city, urban space, is seen as static, stagnant, in decline. You know, there's the phrase urban crisis, the urban underclass, and what I'm looking at is actually the city as a very dynamic place of investment, of ways in, in which the real estate market is looking to revitalize itself through these public-private partnerships with the federal government. And there is, there is obvious decline, and it happens in the lives of black people who rely on these programs to find decent housing because of the prevalence of racial discrimination in the housing market. And so far from being static and stagnant, this is a place of dynamic economic opportunity just for investors, for the real estate industry, for people who look at it as a place to, to make money and not as a place to obviously build community or for people to live in. So we can talk more about that, but this is an area, the cities where African Americans have been opened up to go from exclusion to now being opened up to new forms of predation, to be made vulnerable to new forms of predation are a sign of economic dynamism, not economic stagnation. But as in most of the history of capitalism, that is to the benefit of a few and not to the benefit of the majority. I want to come back in some detail to questions of financial capitalism and how I would argue that it, that's a racial project in and of itself mm -hmm. in significant ways. But one of the things I want to go back to first is to talk a little bit about concept that David Seal Goldberg, among many others, have talked about, which is the racial state. And one of the quotes from Goldberg's book of the same name is how he, he describes how the function of that state is to, among other things, to make life safe for capitalists. Mm -hmm. And one part of, the, when we think about the state, I think there's a New York Times columnist who, when we're having this interview, wrote today about how there's a nostalgia for when white men were heroes, talking about both the movie mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, of course, the president as well. Mm -hmm. Part of that nostalgia, I think, is many so-called progressive rewriting the history of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And one of the points in your book that I that certainly, okay, I guess I'll show my age, mm -hmm. um, brought back a memory for me is how a lot of us when we were young were totally appalled by Jimmy Carter mm -hmm. and his yes. racial politics. Yes. And now he's the great white father yes. who is so benevolent to all y'all. But one of the points in your book is that he explicitly said, I don't want aliens, I'm not going to force aliens into communities where those, yes. he's talking about black people when he's yes. talking about aliens and forcing people into those communities. So to what degree is thinking about a racial state, whether it's run by Democrats like Carter or the more familiar story of Nixon or Reagan, a state that is meant to not just make life safe for capitalism, which of course is the case, as you point out in your book, but also safe for white supremacy? That's a great question. I think if we think in part of the, the racial state as the, the means by which racial identity is created for some and hoisted onto others, then I think we can think about that in, in stages, which is to say that it changes over time. And so I think about this period that I'm 
not just the period I'm looking at, but the moments in the early 20th century when African-Americans began to transition from a rural population to an urban population. And then you can talk about a later transition from not completely, but from Southern to out of the South, whether that be the Northeast, the Midwest, or the West Coast. And so part of what I'm looking at is the way that a black urban identity is created through the racial state. And so what does that process look like through real estate, which is always, you know, real estate is not some discrete entity that exists outside of the state. It is a reflection of deeply intertwined relationships between government, capital, and the state. And that is painfully and evidently clear throughout the 20th century, where there is overlap and collusion between those different entities to create not just segregated cities, not just to limit mobility for some while accelerating it for others, but to literally tie identities of people to particular places. And so the idea of a black urban identity that is created through this process begins very early on. So if we have the private real estate industry in the early 20th century begin to demarcate areas of cities where black people can't go. And Chicago, of course, is the the laboratory for Mm -hmm. a lot of this. Then it's a small space. At the same time, black people begin to enter. And so by the Second World War, we get intense overcrowding. The boundaries that separate black areas from white areas are maintained through terrorism. They're maintained through physical acts of physical violence, through terrorist attack. So they're, which is just to say that they're real. That this is not just about do I want a black neighbor or not. This is about the desperate protection of property values and any means by which to to preserve them. And so overcrowding, black people paying too much for property that is already in disrepair, begins to create a perception of who the black urban resident is. And so whoever you are, if you're just driving through an area and you see buildings in disrepair and you see trash accumulation and you know of rat infestation, you're not getting any backstory. You're not getting any underlying explanation. You are driving through an area and that is what is seen. And that contributes to a feedback loop of why we don't want black people in our particular neighborhood. Look at what they do to property. This is a this is about the formation of a black urban identity that is created through actions of the state real estate, the real estate industry in in combination with each other. And this intensifies over the course of the 20th century as the movement of black people intensifies up until 1970, the, the migration. And so even as the boundaries begin to expand because white people are migrating out of, of cities, the conditions of the housing, the cumulative weight of disinvestment, the cumulative effects of this exclusion that has happened since black people began to come into the city is completely disconnected from any public policy. It is completely disconnected from the activity of the real estate or banking industries and is solely seen as the creation of black people and black families. And so to me, this is the, the, the consummate example of racial identity that has the the state and the private sector actors that rely on the state to have any viability. Uh, this is the consummate example of how racial identity is created in a very specific way to such an extent that it continues to stay with us today so that even when black people now are majority suburban population, this black urban identity that is a creation of the racial state in the early 20th century and that is built up over time through the course of the 20th century remains the the most visible example of who black people are, so much so that the president of the United States continues to refer to inner cities, gentrified inner cities, as a code for what it is to be black. 
And if you look at the housing policies of the leading candidates for the Democratic Party's nomination for 2020, all their housing policies are tied to urban areas and urban are seen as urban issues. And this, this is the power of that identity well into the 21st century when the demographic shifts are well underway, but have, have, it, it's, a, it's a testament to its staying power. Anecdotally, every week, at least once, more than, usually more often than once a week, I get an email from some black economic cultural nationalists who shall remain unnamed. And it's all about a few things. Give me an A, D, O, S, yes. On one hand, it's often defending black men who are indefensible for, mm-hmm. for being predators. But a lot of it is about you know building up black economic power. And a lot of this is centered around home ownership. But you have a section in your book, if I remember correctly, against I'm sure. Home ownership. Against home ownership. <laughs> That goes against everything my grandparents taught me. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this, yes, this this was a, a point of, of controversy. So what this is about is really two things. One is we have a society in which the personal accumulation of wealth is what determines your quality of life. Mm-hmm. The United States has uh, historically weak welfare state by design. And so you need to be rich or aspiring to be so in order to do the very basic things in life. And so in the US, for most people, that has always meant home ownership, right? That the home is the the largest asset that most Americans have. And it is dependent on the notion that this will be an appreciating asset and that over time it will grow to such an extent that it will allow you to finance your children's college education. It will allow you to finance your retirement. If there is a healthcare emergency, it may allow you to finance that. But this is seen as this financial asset that you have that will determine the quality of your life. And this, historically, is why many white people have been so crazed by the presence of black people in their neighborhood, is the idea that any threat to the ability for that asset to accrue in value over time will have an existential impact on on your and your children's life. And so this is what it means for homeownership to be central to the American dream. Now, there's a consequence of that. So if African Americans don't have access to that, then it means that black people are at a permanent disadvantage in a country with a weak welfare state and you have no accruing assets. You are going to have a problem doing all those things that the personal accumulation of wealth is supposed to facilitate. Sending your children to college, retiring, Starting being, a small business. Yes, yes, starting a small business, being able to weather a healthcare emergency, on and on and on, all the things that the house is supposed to help you finance in a country where nothing else will help you finance that. Now, that's one problem. The second thing is if you are African American and you have weathered the storm of trying to own a house and you have somehow made it through the, 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 the storm that has kept black people out of home ownership, and you get a house. Well, the problem is black housing, black communities are valued wholly differently by the real estate market in comparison to their white peers. So even if you have a house, black housing is seen, is literally valued less. So it means less, it's worth less, which means that it still inhibits your ability to do all these things that the accruing asset is supposed to do. And for most African Americans, it means that the asset is not actually accruing, but that it becomes a debt burden for many people. And so this is part of the problem. When we accept this arrangement that individuals must be personally responsible for accruing the assets necessary to determine the quality of their lives, then even when black people do all the things that they are supposed to do, we come out 
on the short end of the stick because of racism in the, in the real estate market. And so this is the problem with accepting home ownership as the supreme expression of what it means to be successful in the United States. It, in, instead of relying on the individual asset, what would it mean to have state-funded financed health care, state-funded college education, if the state had a bigger role in attending to those issues, then it would take an enormous amount of pressure off of individuals to have to do that for themselves. And it's an even added burden for black people in a racist society where housing discrimination is still prevalent, where job discrimination is still prevalent, where all of the barriers are still intact that prevent African Americans from having access to these assets that are supposed to improve quality of one's life. It's part of the, I mean, I, I buy that analysis, and I, I bought it before you said it, which is why yeah, I, yeah. I was talking <laughs> trash when I asked the question. But this is, this is actually a real question, because mm-hmm. I don't have the empirical evidence in front of me, to, but I, I, I want to speculate. It's the degree to which we accept the myth of home ownership as the way to black economic success, significantly promoted by the black upper middle mm-hmm. class because that small fraction of the black community, even though they, I know for a fact from research I have done, does suffer from differential mm-hmm. accumulation. It's still a net positive for them. And, and of all the groups that have ideologically bought into the American dream, that's probably the one class. So to what degree are the class contradictions within the black community responsible for reproducing the myth of home ownership, or do you think that's not a major problem? I, I think that even the extent to which, for a small fraction, it's a net positive in comparison to their white peers, it's a net negative. And I think that what the financial crisis in 2008 showed us is that the the position of the black middle class, whatever that horrible, the... the I used to call them the petty bourgeoisie, but I'm totally can't do that anymore. I like that, yeah. (laughs) It's so fragile. It's so, it's, I mean, we can look at the Maryland Prince George's wiped out, wiped out by the... the, In California, where a lot of my friends who I went to school with... Your communities are wiped out in California and Arizona. Exactly. And so we do know from research that even African-Americans making, in in Chicago, there's a a study done, I think it was generalized beyond Chicago, but during the height of the subprime lending crisis, black people making six figures were pushed into subprime loans at a higher rate than white people making $35,000 a year. So even on the upper end of African-Americans, they still were exposed to predatory lending practices, which meant that the loans were more expensive, which, you know, meant even when upper middle class or middle class black people live in working class black neighborhoods or live in black majority neighborhoods, they have the same issues with not rising property values, but lower property values. They have all of the, the, the same issues, even if they have greater cushion when the fall happens. And so I still think that the problems with the centrality of home ownership express them, themselves even among more resourced black people in ways that it certainly does on the bottom end of the scale. I would agree with that from material slash social science analysis. But as you know, Megan Mink Francis and I wrote a semi-controversial paper Mm -hmm. on neoliberalism and black folks. And I think one of the claims you make that is correct is that the group we're talking about has bought into neoliberalism. Oh, completely. So I think part of of what I would argue is that they accepted the ideological argument without right. understanding what their material interests are. No, I, th- I think if we separate those, those two out, what is actually happening material from whether or not this group of people and their cohort as part of the black political class, yes, they absolutely accept the political framework within which it's happening, which is why they continue to preach home ownership for the poorest black people in the United States, that this is this is the ultimate, you know, anti-poverty program, in contrast to any and all statistical evidence. So I think that is is definitely true. But I do think that for 
a number of, of people beyond them that there is an argument to be made that we have to reimagine what it means to be housing secure. And I think now is mm -hmm. an important time to do that in the same way that the discussion around universal health care has become at least a part of the mainstream discussion. I think the way that universal access to public education from K through 12 to the, the college level has become part of the mainstream discussion. We have to start talking about a homes guarantee and a right to live somewhere, but also as part of a way of reusing our public tax dollars to deal with the housing issue and not continue to see it in private terms by promoting home ownership as the way to ensure not just that people have a place to live, but that this to, to continue to perpetuate the myth that this is the root, the, the root to financial stability, which it's not. And I mean, one of the, I spent some time in Los Angeles recently, and there's uh, even the mainstream news outlets recognize there's a housing crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the obscene contradictions in American housing policy is that homelessness has become ex extraordinary problems for multiple populations, not just the ones we normally think about. But while at the same time we have this massive empty housing stock that's mm -hmm. unused, one of the courses I took in economics, urban economics when I was in grad school made it the point that our politicians don't like to talk about, which is that the private market cannot build. No interest. Yeah. There's no reason for yeah. them to build Zero. safe, affordable, low, low income housing. And there has to be a role for the state. But that, as your book points out, that is what was given up in the 1970s. Abs absolutely. The, there's no, the reason why there is a perpetual housing crisis, which, you know, should mean we should stop calling it a housing crisis. Crisis are yeah, that's, yeah. breaches in yeah. the normal course of events that yeah. occur. This has been a feature of U.S. society for the last 100 years, plus 100 plus years, as soon as the mass wave of urbanization began in the early 20th century, there has been a quote-unquote housing crisis in city after city across the United States. And it's simple. There is no incentive for the real estate industry, the private real estate industry, to build or produce housing for poor and working class people because there is no money to be made in it. And we see that today. Where is all the building happening? It's, the building is happening at the, at the top of the economic scale. They are building million-dollar condos, putting up the most expensive developments that developers and builders can build because that's where the money is to be made. And so what it means is that on the lower end, the lack of housing supply means that the price inevitably goes up dramatically, people get priced out, or you just continue to spend greater and greater amounts of your income to be able to afford the housing that is available. And so without a state component, this can't work. This was also part of the turn to home ownership. This was part of the, the motivation because it was contrasted to the continuing continuing to use public housing or relying mm -hmm. on public housing. And it didn't mean that immediately the stock and public housing stock went into decline because part of the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968, which is the main legislation I look at that created a, the low-income homeownership plan, but also mandated Congress to produce 26 million units of new and rehabilitated housing within a 10-year period. It also called for the expansion of public housing, but it was this was a moment when there was greater privatization of public housing. And so it meant allowing the, the turnkey program meant that the federal government would basically turn over the keys to private developers to manage public housing and to buy to buy buildings to basically divest the the public sector and the state out of housing and turn greater control over to the private sector so there were home ownership plans nicole 
Thurston, who is a political scientist at Northwestern, has a great book about home ownership and the, the turn to opening up opportunities for women to own their own homes in the 1970s. And so she looks at this program that was promoted among black women in Mississippi who were living in public housing so that they could own their own public housing unit. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it in what I was just talking about, the problems with home ownership, what does it mean to tell a black woman in Mississippi, oh, you can own your own little apartment in a public housing development? I mean, this is how even ownership is conceived differently for black people yes. than it is for... for, for, for overnight. Yes. It's, it's, and this saying that African-Americans, black women on welfare, should be, become homeowners of distressed and dilapidated properties in the urban core of Milwaukee or Philadelphia is not seen as a way to build wealth to build assets that will guide you and your family through the rest of your life. This is about, this way we don't have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. This way we don't have to create This will teach you responsibility. Yes, exactly. And so the whole conceptualization of what it means to own, what it means to have private property is seen differently. And that expresses itself in value and whether or not these are seen as assets or whether or not they are seen as the means by which we disinvest from the, the state's mandate to provide social provision for housing. I want to push on that a bit to talk a little bit more about how we conceptualize the relationship between racial subordination on one hand and financialization and financial capitalism on the other. The work of people like Quinn Slobodian, who will be in conversation with Adam Gittichu in, in, in a podcast, has made the argument that the architects of neoliberalism from the beginning saw neoliberalism as a racial project, and as a project to make sure that countries, and, or in our case cities, that become governed by black folks or people of color more generally have their democracy limited so they can't interfere with capitalism. That, that's a crude version, but close enough, I think. But I also think that there's been a number of people writing, and I've written something recently to critique some of this literature about the financialization of capitalism from the, the time that you're talking about, sometimes seen as beginning, often as people see it as mm -hmm. later. But they see it also as written as by and large, as a history that excludes people of color, both within the United States and globally. But I would argue that a lot of what you're talking about is expansion of credit markets, mm -hmm. which was a bit one of the basis for making ordinary people dependent on financial instruments, whether it's home ownership, mm -hmm. et cetera, is certainly an integral part. I want to talk a little bit about something that one of our colleagues has written about quite extensively, which is the relationship between creditworthiness and risk, mm -hmm. and how that's viewed at both a community and individual level. And I want to read a quote from your book. Mm -hmm. You say, the disproportionate poverty and underemployment in black communities, combined with their historic exclusion from public and private initiatives in development and residential rehabilitation efforts, meant that urban black communities were in poorer conditions. These conditions created by racism and exclusion were once again articulated as risk. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by as articulated as risk and what are the consequences of that? Sure. I think that this is certainly a part of what I described earlier as the construction of the black urban identity, and that is African Americans as risky, as, as risky sites of investment, and thus, this becomes the basis for exclusion early on. And it also becomes a way of, it becomes a way for the real estate industry, for the banking industry, and for the federal agents who were complicit in the development of these public-private partnerships to explain away their actions as having nothing to do with race, but is all about risk management. Mm -hmm. And so the notion uh, of risk arises from what I described earlier as the, the physical condition of black communities because of racism and segregation and the overcrowding that ensued become really the, uh, the basis for insurers to uh, refuse to underwrite not just 
black buyers, but anyone in proximity to African-Americans. And so this notion of risk as a expression of, of colorblindness and just as a market precaution becomes very important the deeper that we get into the 20th century as the United States becomes more sensitive to the portrayals of its race relations internationally, as it looks to remove race from the law and to move towards official colorblind disposition. The emphasis on risk is one that then carries over from the period of exclusion to the period of inclusion. And the perceptions of African-Americans as continuing to pose a threat to property values because of the standing black identity, the black urban identity issue, means that depository banks can remain outside of urban areas, at least until a few years later when the the Community Reinvestment Act is imposed on them. But in this immediate period that I'm talking about from 68 to 74, they are able to stay out because of risk and mortgage banks move into that arena, not caring about risk any longer because of the backing of the Federal Housing Administration, the creation of mortgage insurance for urban for urban properties. But that becomes the carryover for continuing to treat African Americans differently. This is the basis for the race tax that, that black people talk about, which is the financial differential between what is purchased in segregated urban areas in comparison to even white urban neighborhoods or certainly white suburban areas. The notion of risk is used by shop owners, by small capitalists within those urban areas and by large capitalists within those urban areas to charge more for their ability to be insured and staying in those communities. And so risk plays a very important role in the evolution of how black consumers are seen within this. And the risk also is racialized with respect to employment, because I know the research, mm, some mm-hmm. research that was done in the University of Chicago, employers would say it's more risky to yes. to, to hire black yes. folks. And indeed, there was game theoretic work done by economists, some of whom were black, right. and that showed that it was rational to discriminate, even if on wrong groups, just based on incentives and probability, at least perceived probabilities right. of riskiness. I just want to say one thing, that when, when the, the FHA was making the decision to stop redlining, because that, that was always an FHA policy that began with its creation in 1934 and continued until the fall of 1967, when its directors and agents were called before the Kerner Commission to talk about the effects of redlining in in black communities, they denied well into the 1960s that race had anything to do with it, that this was always a decision about financial risk and that this particular approach to policy in terms of redlining was based on what the, the, the market led them to do. And so I think that that omission of race as a determining factor, even for the FHA, when it's changing its policies, is important because it means that there is an inattention to racial discrimination within the agency that allows for new forms of discrimination to pick up very quickly, even when the policy, when the, the, the policies regarding redlining have changed, because there's no attempt to grapple with the agency's racial history. Mm, that exactly. It's just seeing this, well, that was a period in which the, the financial risk was too great. Now the financial risk is worth it, and they call it acceptable risk, moving from redlining to an acceptable risk, precisely because the market is going into decline. The white white homeowners have become almost saturated, and they need new frontiers, and they need new places to capitalize. So in that context, risk becomes worth it. And I think that, that, that that's important when talking about the, the financial economic imperatives at the heart of this. Well, I have a thousand more questions, but what I was going to say, I only have three more questions <laughs> <laughs> for now. <laughs> we we'll are definitely going to invite you back <laughs> in the not-so-distant future. 
One of them, I'm going to ask you to step back for a second to think about your work in, in, in this context. One of the friendly but important and often intense debates we have within the National Race and Capitalism Project is to think about to what degree does either the concept of racial capitalism or some of us would prefer race and capitalism useful, both in terms of our mm. theoretical work and our day-to-day analysis of thinking about how to organize in the world. Part of the debate is I've written a paper that was published this year with Emily Kastenstein that argues that race, patriarchy, heteronormativity, and capitalism have their own logic that are articulated with each other, but we should think of, we should understand those logics and how they interact with each other as, a, as opposed to collapsing into racial capitalism. We have colleagues who mm. also use the term racial capitalism, think, think, making the argument explicitly that racial capitalism is a concept that is expansive enough to deal with heteronormativity, expansive enough to deal with patriarchy, expansive enough to think about how these different systems of domination um, interact with each other. And I'm wondering, based on your own work, both your scholarly work and your intensive practical work, do you find either those approaches or none of these approaches approaches useful analytically? I think that the the contributions of racial capitalism have been important over the last several years. I mean, the, the critique, the main critique that I have heard and engaged with is that, well, capitalism, we understand it to be racist, right? That Malcolm X said, you can't have racism without capitalism mm-hmm. and you can't have capitalism yeah. without racism. And so what what is added by distinguishing this framework of racial capitalism? But I, th- I think it's, it's actually quite important, partially for the ways that the, in some ways that the, 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 the socialist project has been distorted as one that is primarily interested in white people that is a, is a project of, of white people. And I think that the way that this can express itself around this question of capitalism or racial capitalism is this new subfield of the history of capitalism, which has tried to see itself as somehow inventing the link between slavery and capitalism when this is this is quite old in the scholarship of black marxists black socialists who have always understood the centrality of slavery not just to american capitalism but to global capitalism there is there is no capitalism without without slavery and so i think in this way that the constitutive relationship between race and capitalism has been lost. And so what racial capitalism does is it makes it impossible to separate the two. It makes it impossible to skirt that issue in ways that I think are sometimes reflected in history of capitalism scholarship and certainly are reflected in the ways that socialism has been described within the United States. And so I think that it's it's quite critical when I, in the work that, that I do, when you see that capitalist exploitation is not just about the profiteering for some and the absence of that for others. It is about the profiteering for some, but it's also about the way that supposed defective identities are created that create the conditions for their exploitation and oppression and not just create the conditions, but necessitate it. So you look at the segregation and the creation of black communities is not just a kind of banal fact that may exist on a map, but that these enclaves are created for the purpose of extracting from them. They're, they're created for the purpose of profiteering at the expense of people who live there. And what's even worse than that is that it creates this identity that then blames the people who have been victimized by this financial arrangement for their own victimization, which then seeks to lock them in that position of subordinated victimization for further exploitation and extraction into perpetuity. And so that is a racial and a financial project that feel like if, if we just leave it within the framework of, oh, this is, this is capitalism, we miss that nefarious aspect of how othering creates the conditions for further extraction and 
in, in some ways is worse because it justifies and legitimizes that further extraction. As I think I opened with, a lot of us have been waiting for a race for profit, but <laughs> I know you work on five things at one time. <laughs> what can we look forward to in terms of your work? You know, the ink is barely dry in this book. Um, <laughs> but a couple of things that I'm thinking about. One is I, I want to work in some capacity or other. I'm not sure yet what it will look like on the contemporary housing crisis and how it affects African-Americans. And so that means looking at the cumulative impact of evictions, foreclosures, and gentrification for the purpose of really thinking about new ideas in terms of how to challenge this and, and how to resist this. And I think that we're in a moment of the need for big ideas and, and for new ideas. And so I want to think through what it would mean to call for universal housing or a housing guarantee, what that would look like, what, what, that, would, what that would mean. I think that the work of Daniel Aldana Cohen, who's a sociologist at Penn, who's written about race and housing in the Green New Deal, is thinking in those terms in very inspiring ways. And I would also, as part of that project, want to look outside of the United States. And so there are vibrant housing movements in wildly different places. Berlin has a, a very strong movement that just recently forced the state, which is like state city government, to impose a five-year rent freeze, which the state officials offered as an alternative. The movement was calling for the state to expropriate properties that are held by a, a huge developer in Berlin where rents have been exploding over the last several years. There's a, a vibrant movement in Barcelona. There's the, the public social housing developments in Vienna are, are interesting. And so- Our colleague Toussaint Lucie has done some work on South Africa housing yeah, movements. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think not confining ourselves to these, in this country we're left with mixed income developments, the, the horrible affordable housing framework, which just means cheaper than market rate, doesn't actually mean that it's affordable to the people who most need it. So I'm, I'm interested in developing some ideas around that and looking at that as a project. And then I'm a historian, trained as a historian. And so the other project that I'm thinking about is I want to write a history of some sort on the Congressional Black Caucus. And it's wild changes from its inception in the officially 1971, but really 1969. I'm trying to decide if, if it's up to the crime bill 1994 or up which the most of the members of that caucus supported or Clinton's Effective Death Penalty Act in 1996 or the end of the Clinton regime. I'm trying to figure that out now. And I'd like to start with not necessarily CBC, but looking at Jackson's presidential runs in 84 yeah. and 88. So they're, they're not quite, one is, is a very urgent sort of, there's a contemporary crisis happening right now, and then there's another sort of much more, will be a long, longer uh, project. As someone whose family was involved in one yes. of those projects, <laughs> which hopefully you'll start at a later date, <laughs> so the name Dawson doesn't uh -huh. appear. <laughs> But those are linked. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, seriously, they're, they're substantially linked. The problems we see today are linked to, the, in part, to what the CBC did and did not do. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. You can also follow us on Twitter at Race Capitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project. 